you. Oh, I love coming to this church. Um, whenever Jesus would do miracles or preach sermons or was just out and about, it says that the common people heard him gladly and they constantly said, this man has done all things well. In other words, he's an A plus at everything he does. Even when he was a construction worker, a blue collar worker, actually some uh, ancient historians argue that the Bible is the only ancient document that esteems and lifts up blue collar work because that's what Jesus was doing. He was a construction worker. So whether he was doing carpentry, preaching sermons, or performing miracles, it says that the people said of him, he has done all things well. And every time I come to this church, I just feel like you guys do all things well. It's committed to excellence. Uh, One more thought on this intro about how awesome your church is. (laughs) I remember um, my grandpa told me a story when I was a kid. My grandfather actually worked for Walt Disney when Walt Disney was alive, and uh, he helped build the original Disneyland. I don't know if you're aware of this, but when Disneyland first uh, was constructed, when it first opened up, it was an unmitigated disaster. I mean, it just, it, it went horrible the opening week. But as they continued to improve it and work on it, it became the magical kingdom and the happiest place on earth. When my grandpa was helping build Disneyland, he and his construction crew that he was overseeing, they built this massive building, this construct, and Walt Disney walks up to it with his entourage and he says, wow, that building looks perfect. The only thing is we have to move it over a few inches, but other than that, don't change anything. So they had to literally tear the whole building down, move it over a few inches, and, uh, and that was Disney. It was excellence in the details. That's why it's Disneyland, because they were willing to uh, put you know, perfectionism into their work, and that's what you guys do here. That was a long intro. I'm just saying I love this church. Um, I'm so grateful to get to visit you again all the way from Oregon. As we talked about uh, earlier, this, uh, this holiday season, we're going to find hope hope, hope, hope. Hope is my favorite theme. Hope is the one string upon which I harp. I'm a one-trick pony. I just want to talk about hope all day, every day. The Bible says we are to count it all joy when we fall into various tribulations, which means hope is a journey. Joy is a choice. And sometimes we have to fight for what we don't feel. I don't know if you're aware of this, but depression and suicide rates actually increase and are augmented during the holidays. For many people, Christmas is a time of great joy. It's Harry Connick Jr. Christmas carols. It's eggnog. It's presents under the tree. But for others, um, it can be a reminder of loved ones that are lost and exacerbated loneliness when you see other people who are happy, when your interpersonal relationships perhaps have fallen apart. For many people, Christmas can be a time that is incredibly painful. And what I want to do is by the end of my segment with you, I want you to walk away with a whole lot of hope. Because the truth is, just because bad things might be happening around us during the holiday season does not mean they need to be happening inside us. We can't control what happens to us, but we can control what comes through us. God never does anything to us. He only does things for us. And if God's going to do something for us, he's first got to work something in us. So we're not going to look down and give up. We're going to look up and get up because Jesus rose so we could rise. We're not going to look down and get distressed. We're not going to look around and get stressed. We're not going to look inside and get depressed. We're going to look up and get blessed because we are too blessed to be stressed. This is going to be a holiday of hope. That's what we're looking forward to. And this theme of Christmas around the world, you guys are bringing hope here, near, and far. I love it. So for my short time with you, 
I want to talk to you about four Christmas items that will bring you hope during these holidays. Three of them are very familiar. Uh, We're going to talk about the classic nativity scene, the wise men, how they bring us hope, shepherds, how they bring us hope, and Christmas carols, how they bring us hope. But the fourth is a surprise. We're going to talk about how Jesus's first words as a baby give us hope. You say, what are those first words? Well, you'll have to hang on till the end to find the answer to that. But I love this. Um, Let's first talk about the wise men, how they bring us hope. If you're picturing that classic nativity scene, you usually see three wise men. But actually, in the biblical narrative, we're not told how many wise men there were. There could have been a hundred wise men. Uh, The the number three uh, is traditional. Basically, these were magicians and astrologers from the East who were reading the star sign to try to find this Mashiach. It's a very mystical story, the, the Christ figure, the coming king. Well, as the wise men approach Jesus, we're told that they gave Jesus, the little baby, three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, what I want to do is I want to capitalize on that first gift the wise men gave to Jesus and why this gives us hope. Number one, gold. Would everyone say gold? Gold. Let's try that with a little more gusto. Everyone say gold. Gold Gold was a king's medal. So gold was the medal that you would give to a king. Now, here's why this is so interesting to me. We're told the story of Jesus there in the upper room discourse when he's sharing the last meal with his disciples. There he is. He, the Bible says, puts on an apron. He puts on a girdle and he begins to wash their feet. Now, here's what's so interesting about that. Jesus as a baby is offered gold because everyone is admitting, these wise men, he is a king. In fact, The word Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. So if you were your school teacher, you wouldn't say, Mr. Christ, I have a question. Christ was not a noun, it was an adjective. Um, It actually meant anointed one. The word Christ or Messiah, it's a title and it means anointed one. Why? Because back in the ancient Mesopotamian Near East, uh, when you became king, you were anointed with oil. So you guys all remember King David, David who killed Goliath. He was anointed three times by the prophet Samuel with oil as a harbinger, as a sign that portended that he would be the king. So just as Obama or Trump will swear on a Bible in the Oval Office and that inaugurates them into office, instead of swearing on a Bible back then, they were anointed with oil and that's how they became king. So when you said the word Jesus Christ or Jesus Messiah, you were saying Jesus anointed one, which had political overtones. You were saying Jesus King, King Jesus. That's what Christ means. It means anointed one or king. It was a political title. So when Jesus was offered gold as a baby, the wise men were saying he's the king. And yet when Jesus is 33 years old, he grows up and so far from acting like royalty, he is actually washing the feet of his disciples. Now back then in in wealthy households, what you would do is you would have a little servant girl And the slave girl, if you were a wealthy household owner, you would have your slave girl wash the feet of the guests that entered the home. So when Jesus was washing the feet of his disciples, including Judas, who would betray him, he was acting like their slave girl in that culture. As we heard in the first service today, he who thought it not robbery to be equal with God humbled himself and took on the form of a servant washing his disciples' feet. 
Now, here's why this is so interesting. The gold that was offered to Jesus, the Christ, declaring that he was king gold, a king's medal, it's actually done far differently than anyone imagined. Jesus is the most unlikely king you could have ever fathomed. So far from wearing a crown of gems, he wore a crown of thorns. Instead of holding a golden scepter, he was beat with a wooden scepter by the Romans. Instead of wearing a purple robe, which was the color of majesty, Jesus was given a purple robe of mockery. And instead of asking his subjects to kiss his feet, he washed the feet of his subjects. Instead of wearing a signet ring on his finger, he had nails in his hands. And the sign above his head didn't say, Henry, king of the English, or Charlemagne, king of the Franks, or Alexander, king of the Macedons. Rather, it said Jesus, king of the Jews, meant to make fun of him and mock him. Jesus was the most unlikely king imaginable. So there he is washing the feet of his disciples. Now, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, said, Lord, don't wash my feet. In effect, essentially, you're a king. And Jesus said, if you do not let me wash your feet, you will have no part with me. Peter then replied, then wash my whole body, Lord. He was the caffeinated disciple. But be that as it may, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, showing that he is a king unlike any other. You see, Jesus didn't just want to wash his disciples' feet when he was doing his earthly ministry on earth 2,000 years ago in the Mesopotamian Near East. But still to this day, the Bible portrays Jesus as a servant king. Watch this. In the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, We're told that Jesus in his present glorified state in this apocalyptic literature of John the Apostle's vision, Jesus is wearing a girdle of gold. Now, why is that interesting? Because back in the first century, to wear a girdle meant that you were a slave. Just like today, if you have a blue collar, you're probably a mechanic, a white collar, you're a corporate CEO, a uniform, you might be a police officer, a jersey, you're a basketball player. If you wear an apron, you're a chef. Well, back then to wear a girdle meant that you were a servant. So John says that Jesus in heaven is wearing a girdle. That is servant's attire. But the girdle is made of gold. What is gold? A king's medal. Remember Jesus is a baby. What was he offered? Gold. So what John was saying in this attire that he portrays Jesus as wearing is that Jesus wears a girdle of gold, meaning he is a servant king. And what I want to tell you today is this. So often we think that walking with God is about what we can do for God. How can we serve God? As great as that might be, here's what Jesus is saying. How can I serve you? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God up in heaven is saying, how can I serve you, Hope? Because Jesus is wearing a girdle of gold, the servant king, the slave's attire with the riches of royalty. Come on, that's pretty sick if you ask me. Number one, gold. That gives us hope because we know this Christmas season, it's not just the gifts that we can give to God, but rather the gift of service that he gives to us. He wants to answer prayers at your behest. 
He wants to fight battles on your behalf. He wants to heal sicknesses. The Bible says he's Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. He wants to heal broken hearts. In fact, the phrase broken heart was invented by the Bible. Number one, we see in the wise men the gift of gold showing that he's the king, but he wears a girdle of gold. He's a servant king. He wants to serve you. Number two, shepherds. Everyone say shepherds. Now we all see in our nativity scene these shepherds tending their sheep. Why? Because you remember when the angels pronounced peace on earth, goodwill toward men on that Christmas night, that holy night, that silent night, when the angels appeared singing peace on earth, goodwill toward men, glory to God in the highest. Who were they singing this Christmas carol to? The angels, the Bible says, were singing it to shepherds who were tending their fields, tending their sheep, pardon me, in the fields by night. Now here's what's so interesting. The Christmas message first was delivered to shepherds in the biblical narrative. Now why that's so fascinating is today, I don't know if anyone in Cincinnati happens to be a shepherd. I know we have a lot of movers and shakers and titans and tycoons of industry and Fortune 500 companies and all that stuff. So I'm not sure if there's a whole lot of nomadic shepherds in the audience today. But back in the ancient world, being a shepherd was considered a curse. If you had gone against the taboo of the village, if you had done something heinously egregious and wrong, then you would be actually excommunicated and you would be ostracized and relegated to the fields where you would have to take care of sheep. So when you would come back into the village, the smell of sheep would precede you And it would be as obvious as a bell around your neck. And everyone would know, oh, that's a shepherd. He must have done something wrong. In fact, there was a group of religious leaders back then called Pharisees. And these Pharisees, uh, they actually believed that the shepherds were sinful because they couldn't perform ceremonial hand washings. So shepherds were despised. They were considered to be outcasts. Oh, that gives me so much hope. Because sometimes I can feel like an oddball, odd man out and outcast. But I always like to remember, if you want to be number one, you have to be odd. <laughs> You'll get that on your way home, perhaps. <laughs> but Jesus said the last will be first. The first message comes to shepherds. I love that. Perhaps this holiday season, you feel like you're an outcast. Perhaps you feel like there's no hope for you. Perhaps on this holiday season, you feel like a failure. You've gone against the taboo of the village. You've, you've missed the mark. You've erred. You, you feel like you've fallen uh, short of your goals and God's glorious standards. Maybe these Christmas holidays are reminding you about failed relationships. Oh, I wish I raised my kids better. I wish I had been a better wife. I wish I had been a better son to my parents. Or whatever these Christmas holidays, the pain of past failures may bring up as other families seem to be so happy and successful. Let me encourage you that the first message of Christmas was delivered to the outcasts, to the criminal, to those who had gone against the taboo of the village, to those who were religiously and spiritually unclean, the untouchables. Which gives me a lot of hope because uh, if you ever feel like a failure, I know I, know I certainly do. For me, uh, hope is, is my message, but it's because I failed at hope for so many years. For 10 years, I went through chronic depression 
where I would wake up in the morning, I would stare at walls. I would feel like a robot with dead batteries. I felt so fatigued. Even if I'd get good sleep, I would wake up in the morning and I was fraught with existential angst and I couldn't quite find a reason to get up in the morning. So I would read all these philosophical, metaphysical books. I would read Camus' absurdism and Hume's empiricism and I would read Sartre's existentialism and Nietzsche's nihilism and Chesterton's Catholicism and I would be reading all of these ancient tomes to try to riddle out the conundrums and pains of life. And then a few years ago, God healed my broken heart. He gave me hope. And now I'm on a singular mission <laughs> to give everyone else hope because we live in the most depressed generation ever. That's not like an opinion. That is actually a sociological data research fact. Part of that's because of social media, but we live in the biggest, most depressed, pardon me, we live in the most depressed generation um, of all time. And even for me, like the holidays can bring up a lot of bad memories. I was very much heartbroken in a relationship a few years ago during the holidays. Um, These holidays are very difficult for me and my family. I'm just sharing my heart with you guys and my personal story on this. So it's not just hear my words, it's touch my wounds. Um, We just found out about a week ago that my brother has stage three colon cancer. And uh, I work with my brother. We both teach in Oregon at, at my dad's church. And the Christmas holidays should be a time of joy. But sometimes if you're going through these difficult tragedies, trials, tribulations, traumas, and tempests, Hope can be very hard to find. That's why what I'm trying to tell you is hope is not something that's just robustly flavored donuts of fun, wink at suffering, unicorn shooting rainbows out of their eyes, airy fairy, happy clappy, wishy-washy, hunky-dory, pie in the sky, sunny with eye of 75, fluffy, everything's a-okay. Hope in the Bible is buoyant. The hope that I'm talking to you about is something that can withstand any storm. Hope in the Bible is not just for you who are, you know, drinking your eggnog next to the fire, everything's going perfect in your family. Oh, you have hope too. But it's also for those of you shepherds who are hurting and ostracized and feel like outcasts to the joy of the holidays. By the way, shepherds, 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 these guys were considered failures. The reason this gives me hope is because I fail a lot, man. But I found that throughout history, Some of the most important and integral and central figures to actually changing the tides of the world, these people were great failures. Just like the shepherds first to receive the Christmas message were failures, they'd gone against the taboo, they were outcasts, so too, the greatest figures in history were often failures. Are you haunted by a failure today? Be encouraged. Colonel Sanders, he of mustache fame, the creator of KFC. Colonel Sanders... He tried to sell his chicken recipe and more than a thousand restaurants turned him down. Now, if I had a chicken recipe and I tried to sell it to over a thousand restaurants and they turned me down, I would think, you know, being a chef is not my cup of tea. But he persevered. Walt Disney. Did you know Walt Disney uh, was turned down by over 100 banks when he tried to get funding for Disneyland? More than a hundred banks turned him down. Walt Disney was fired by a newspaper editor because he, and I quote, lacked imagination and had no good ideas. (laughs) 
Charlie Chaplin, America's first bona fide movie star. Charlie Chaplin, during his first screen test, his screen testers said, he's too obscure, his act is too obscure for anyone to understand. And they panned him during his first screen test and he became America's first bona fide movie star. Winston Churchill, he's one of my favorite. favorite. Uh, Winston Churchill failed sixth grade. Did you know that? Churchill failed sixth grade. Did you know Winston Churchill lost every public office role he ran for until he became prime minister in his 60s? And then when he led uh, England and the British and the allied powers against the Axis powers through World War II successfully, they didn't even elect him back into office. He just had one lucky stroke, one lucky strike when he ended up being prime minister in his 60s, a a one-time run to uh, fight against Hitler. But Winston Churchill, I I love this guy. Failed sixth grade, lost every public office role he ran for, and look at him. He, he changed the world, and he was like the cleverest person ever. One time he was talking to Nancy Astor, and Nancy Astor said, Winston, if you were my husband, I would poison your tea. And Churchill said, and madam, if you were my wife, I would drink the tea you poisoned. <laughs> Another time, Bessie Braddock, as you know, Winston Churchill was, was tipsy a lot of the time. And Bessie Braddock said, Winston, you're drunk. And Churchill said, and madam, you're ugly. (laughs) And tomorrow when I wake up, I'll be sober. And tomorrow when you wake up, (laughs) I think you get the rest of it. I mean, he was more clever tipsy than I am sober. It's pretty amazing. But Churchill, man, he failed sixth grade. Lost every public office role he ran for until he became prime minister in his 60s. Thomas Edison was told by his school teachers he was too stupid to learn anything. Beethoven was told by his music teacher that he was a hopeless composer. Dr. Seuss, his first book was rejected by 27 different publishers. Harrison Ford, after his first small movie role, was taken into an executive's office and he was told, you'll never make it in the movie business. Tell that to Chewbacca. Vincent Van Gogh, no wonder the guy chopped off his ear. He sold a total of one painting in his entire life, and that was just months before he died. It was called the Red Vineyard. Sold one painting in his entire life. Uh, Abraham Lincoln lost an embarrassing eight elections, couldn't get into law school, failed at business twice, and had a nervous breakdown before he became our 16th president. Mark Ruffalo, the Oscar-nominated Hulk, Mark Ruffalo, do you know how many auditions uh, he had to do before he got his first role? Almost 600. Almost 600 auditions before he got his first role and got nominated for an Oscar. Babe Ruth struck out 1,330 times. James Dyson, how many of you guys like the Dyson vacuum? He created 5,127 prototypes. What I'm trying to say is, man, just because you fail doesn't mean you're not one of the greats. Moses had temper problems. Elijah was moody. Paul tried to kill Christians. Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples, was xenophobic. David uh, murdered somebody. And Peter denied Jesus three times when a little girl peer pressured him. It's not about how high you climb. It's about how high you bounce back when you hit the bottom. 
As Churchill himself said, failure is not fatal. Success is not final. It's the courage to continue on that counts. We might fail, but God's love never fails. And these shepherds who are considered failures, outcasts, they get the first message of Christmas. And then Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. Come on, if that doesn't preach, I don't know what will. Number one, gold, the servant king. Number two, shepherds. He loves the failures. And uh, number three, Christmas carols. And I'm going to begin our initial descent here. Christmas carols. Oh, we love singing Christmas carols. The first Christmas carol ever sung was the angels to the shepherds. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Glory to God in the highest. Now, why this is so interesting to me is because in the ancient Near East, in biblical culture and times, when a baby was born, this was the custom the local musicians would come to your house and they would strike up a tune. They would play a song. Specifically, when a baby boy was born, they would celebrate with the playing of music. When Jesus was born in a manger, no musicians came to play to celebrate this baby boy's birth. In fact, the Bible says there was no room for him in the inn. So he was born in a manger, which was actually a feeding trough with a bunch of livestock nearby because he is the bread of life. He was born in a feeding trough in a manger. No room for him in the inn. No musicians playing for him, even though that was the first century cultural custom. But where the earthly musicians failed, the heavenly angels in the story show up in the sky and start singing glory to God, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, joy to the world, Luke chapter two. And what I want to encourage you with is this. Sometimes when you get the frown of men, you have the smile of God where the earthly musicians fail. The heavenly musicians will do a concert that will put Coldplay to shame. People can put you down, but they can't take you down. People will let you down, but God will always lift you up. I just thought of that just now. That was good. <laughs> so what I've tried to encourage you in is perhaps you don't feel celebrated this Christmas. Perhaps you feel alone this Christmas. There's a heavenly choir singing over you. Zephaniah 3.17 says, God rejoices over you with singing. Have you ever thought of God singing? He has angel pipes. Ariana Grande ain't got nothing on his voice. God rejoices over you with singing. Even if you have the frown of men, even if you feel alone this Christmas, you are never alone and you're never less lonely than when you get alone with God. You have the smile of heaven. The earthly musicians may fail, but there's a concert up there with the angels. Can I get an amen to that? Then fourthly and lastly, here's the great surprise. We've covered three big ones. The wise men with the gold, the shepherds, with their sheep, the Christmas carols, the angels singing where the earthly musicians failed. But fourthly and finally, I want to do a little surprise that will give you hope. That is, what were Jesus's first words? Well, I actually just learned this about a week ago. Um, Interestingly enough, in, in the Jewish religion, remember the Old Testament teaches about Judaism and the Hebrew religion. In the Old Testament religion, they had a name for God. 
The name that the Old Testament Jews used for God, it was the word Yahweh. Would everyone say Yahweh? Now, the word Yahweh that the ancient Jews used to describe and depict God through this sobriquet moniker, this nomer, this was a word that had no vowels. You see, in the Hebrew language, there's no A-E-I-O-U. There's no vowels. They only use consonants. And so you're expected to put in the vowels when you speak audibly, but there are no technical written vowels in the Hebrew language. It's only consonants. So if you write down the name of God, it's only consonants. It's Yahweh is Y-H-W-H. Consonants, Y-H-W-H. Now these are the only consonants in the Hebrew language that if you pronounce it correctly audibly, you can't speak the words Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, these consonants, with your lips closed. You, you, you can't speak it with your lips closed. You have to audibly speak Y-H-W-H in a way that um, doesn't allow you to close your lips. Furthermore, uh, it cannot be spoken with the tongue. And so the pronouncing of the sacred name, it was called the Tetragrammaton in ancient Jewish religion, was an attempt, watch this, to imitate and replicate breath. So watch this. That's how they pronounced the name of God. It was meant to imitate and replicate breath. So the way you would say Yahweh, you can't use it with your tongue, can't do it with your lips closed, you would breathe in Yah, and you would breathe out Way. That was the sacred name, Yahweh. Yahweh. Which means the first words that Jesus would have spoken out of his mother's womb was And the last words he spoke on the cross, Father, into thy hands do I commend my spirit. Yahweh. Then he gave up the ghost. So Jesus' first words were the same as your first words. Yahweh. The name of God, Yahweh. Now why is that so interesting? Because maybe in this Christmas season, you feel hopeless. Can I encourage you with something? If you say, where is God? News for you, he's as close as your breath. He's as near to you as your inhalation and exhalation. To ask where is God is like asking what shape is yellow. He's here, he's near, he's dear. We just need an awareness of his thereness. There, my friends, is hope during the holidays. So what we're gonna say this holiday season is how can we be hope dealers to everyone else We have enough dope dealers in the world. We need some more hope dealers. We need some people who are going to spread the Christmas cheer 365 days a year. May we be filled with hope this season because we know that the love of God knows no boundaries. May we go through our day and may we go through these Christmas holidays in such a way that we can say we know that wrong will be worsted, right will triumph, we are baffled to fight better, we sleep to wake, we fall to rise, we might have hell around us, but we have the kingdom of heaven inside us, so even if we go through hell, we're not going to smell like smoke because we are the people who've gone through hell carrying buckets of water for those still consumed by the fire, so we are going to rejoice evermore because the servant king wants to bless us even if we're out outcast like the shepherds. There's a concert in heaven for us, heavenly Christmas carols, and we know that God is as close to us as our very breath. We have hope, so we're going to serve it to everyone else. Come on. 
Game over for despair. Game over for depression. We are going to be the hope dealers during this Christmas season. Well, I loved sharing with you guys. Thanks for letting me hang out. Two quick announcements uh, as you go your way. There's a Christmas tree in the back where we can actually serve hope to orphans and children in need. If you would like to get a gift for an orphan or a child in need around the world, you can do so by taking the ornament off the tree, buying the gift that's listed on the ornament, returning it under the tree before Christmas Eve, and already you guys have been giving in record numbers this, this season to children in need. Also, the content that I've been discussing today is in a, a new book I have coming out called Optimisfits. For people who are optimistic misfits, optimisfits. And uh, it comes out March 19th. We're selling bookmarks today. If you'd like to buy a bookmark, you'll pre-order the book. So by getting the bookmark, the book will get shipped right to you uh, when it comes out. And none of the money goes to me. It just goes right back into Hope Generation Ministries. So I'm so thankful for you guys. May this be a very merry, merry, merry Christmas. Amen. Thank you, Ben. Can we thank Ben for coming again? So wonderful to hear you speak, man. Uh, Just a couple other quick things. Christmas Eve's coming. Um, If you're going to come to one of our nine identical services, they are going to be on Sunday morning uh, on the hour on our regular times, except they're on the hour. Nine, 10, and 11 on uh, Monday, Christmas Eve. They will be two, three, four, five, six, and seven o'clock. So if you'd like tickets, head out to the rear atrium by the, uh, the fireplace. Uh, there's a big TV, says Christmas, next to a big Christmas tree. That's where you want to be. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.